The story of Scripture begins with creation. If you've ever tried to read the Bible in a year or tried to read the Bible at all, you've likely read Genesis 1. We all make it through Genesis 1, maybe to Genesis 2 or 3, and then people start killing each other and we start to lose steam, right? But the creation story really is a rich text. The creation stories, I should say. Because early in Scripture, we see this multi-layered thing called faith. And the way we understand who God is and how God works and how we work in the midst of God is not just one story, but stories. Today, we're going to take a look at both stories, um, starting with the first one found in chapter 1. This is that big magnum opus, the in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And it sounds cosmological and it sounds grand and majestic. And I'm going to read just a selection of verses that deal most tangibly with the creation we encounter here upon this earth. In verse 11, it says this, and you'll see it on your screens. God said, let the earth grow plant life, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees, bearing fruit and seeds inside it, each according to its kind throughout the earth. And that's what happened. The earth produced plant life, plants yielding seeds, each according to its kind, and trees bearing fruit with seeds inside it, each according to its kind. God saw how good it was. God created the great sea animals and all the tiny living things that swarm in the waters, each according to its kind, and all the winged birds, each according to its kind. God saw how good it was. God said, let the earth produce every kind of living thing, livestock, crawling things, and wildlife. And that's what happened. God made every kind of wildlife, every kind of livestock, every kind of creature that crawls on the ground. God saw how good it was. And then God said, let us make humanity in our own image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things living on the earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. And then God said, I now give to you all the plants on the earth that yield seeds and all the trees whose fruit produces its seeds within it. These will be your food to all wildlife, to all the birds of the sky, to all everything crawling on the ground, to everything that breathes. I give all the green grasses for food. And that's what happened. God saw everything that God had made. It was supremely good. For the word of God in scripture And for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us, church, let us say, thanks be to God. So there's a lot of ways you can teach this text. This is a very rich text, as as the poetic language opens us up to this idea of how God was in that creation moment and series of moments. And, And today, I want us to look at just one specific part of this text, specifically the way that God uh, encounters humanity and the, and the charge that God gives to humanity as a result. When God creates humanity, God, God grants people sort of two gifts. The, the, the first of which is equity, we could say. 
See, the, the story of creation, the first one anyways, the one in Genesis chapter 1, it's a story of the magnitude of creation. When God makes fish, God makes lots and lots of fish, the Hebrew says. When God makes cattle, God makes lots and lots of cattle. God makes lots and lots of ants and lots and lots of spiders. And God makes lots and lots of people, too. When God makes humanity, God's not just making Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. God is making the world filled with people, people that look, act, and believe differently, that everybody bears this image of God is a radical notion for the Hebrew Bible to come out of the gates with. Because in the days when the scripture was being written, when, when the author was writing this down, the, the, the general thought was that people lived in a hierarchy. When we've, we've done away with that, haven't we? Oh, wait a second. How many of y'all watched the coronation of King Charles, right? I he looks so silly and all that get up. Anyways, we've been doing this for a while, though, that, that this idea that there is a king, typically, a king in, in a patriarchal system, and, and that king in those days was thought to be the reflection of God in the world, that that was the image bearer. The king was the image bearer. And the Hebrew Bible is saying here in Genesis chapter 1, no, no, everybody is an image bearer, and, and not just every dude everybody, it specifically names male and female, in those days that would have meant everybody bears the image of God in this very egalitarian sense. That's a gift, I think, to the early people. The other gift that God gives is the gift of power. Now this is where things get complicated, because the way we interpret this power can lead us to a number of different dilemmas. The, the language that you heard me read earlier is, is God says, take charge, of creation take charge lead and then later there's this word he says, god says master it master the world around you you know it's important to remember that when we're reading the bible we're reading a translation of the bible right and when you're reading a translation of the bible you're also reading someone's interpretation of the bible right because i don't know if you knew this but it wasn't written in english at first um, it, it wasn't even close. It was written in a, in a version of Hebrew that, that you have to be a, a crazy scholar to actually understand, really understand it, not just be like me and like Google some stuff to try to sound smart, right? Um, to understand uh, scripture, it would also mean to go back in time and understand what these specific authors meant when using these specific words. There's literally no way for us to have a perfect one-to-one -one translation of scripture. So you're always reading somebody's interpretation. And the language used here for taking charge and for mastering, you know, there are some translations that you might read and it'll say uh, dominate or have dominion over. Now that's an interpretation. Let's talk about this for a second. Because when we read this opening chapter of Genesis and we read the, the, the charge that God gives us, it can take us in two very natural directions. The two most common ways of reading the scripture, the first is this sort of dominating idea that, that, that God is giving creation to us to use to meet our ends, right? And our job is to dominate it and to use it up. And that will, that will take you to a really weird end run, both theologically and then also practically. See, it can take you to this end run where our job is quite literally to use up the earth as much as possible because guess what? Jesus is going to show up again anyways, and if we burn it all up, who cares? Jesus is going to burn it up even more and then build a new one, a shinier one where all the good people get to live. And you might be thinking, who are the good people and when is Jesus? Don't ask those kinds of questions. You don't want to know the answer to them. I promise you because it's probably not you uh, and uh, it's definitely not me. Um, yeah, we're all going to the bad place, friends. Um, 
So there's this theological end run that when I'm given something to dominate, to, to, to use up in that way, then it can make me really not care about the creation other than how it can meet my needs and how it can serve my purposes. Practically, that can lead us to some really dangerous places. It's why right now, one of the things that frustrates me to no end is the number of prominent Christians who are speaking against trying to make the climate change not as destructive as it is, right? Now, I am not a climate scientist. I know that 97% of them agree with what I'm saying right now, so you can email me if you want to, but the, the, the point is this. I'm not going to get into the, to the finer minutia details of how many degrees Celsius the oceans need to rise before whatever happens. Here's what I do know, is that the world around us needs us to care for it. And there are people of the Christian faith who quite theologically will say, that's not really our job. Because they really believe God's going to burn it up and build a new one, so who cares, right? Who cares about the pandas? I care about the pandas. They're cute. Who cares about rising sea levels? I care about rising sea levels because I believe God has told me to care for them. So that's the first way that we can understand this scripture, this sense of power is that we're being given power to dominate. That leads us not just to potentially not care about climate change, it would also lead us potentially to a colonialistic mindset, right? Where people and resources and lands are a means to an end, where we see people in different lands from us as little higher than the beasts of the land, and maybe not even that. It's what has led to centuries and centuries, and even current days still, the abuse of people enslaving them either quite literally or enslaving them through poverty because their resources matter to us more than they do, right? That's theological. There's theology in that. We're, we're refusing to see the equity that God takes into creation, there's another way we can look at this text, and perhaps a better way, and that's to see ourselves, yeah, God says, take charge, be the leaders, be on top, but do so in a more helpful way. Be a good steward of creation, perhaps. Someone who's been given something that then you are meant to manage and to treat well. The, the problem with that perspective is that while it's certainly, for me, a better landing spot than, than the dominating style, it, it still places us on top. And what I can't escape is that as creation is being created in Genesis chapter 1, uh, the author says that God sees every little ingredient as good. It's good. The plants are good. The birds are good. The sea animals are good. Even the spiders are good, right? God's weird. Those are good. They're good. And then we get added in at the very last second. And it's not that we're supremely good, it's that God looks at everything all together in the way that it's working in and amongst itself, and God says, that's supremely good. And somehow we interpret that to mean that we're supremely good, and we're supposed to be good to this creation that's beneath us. I don't know if that's the best way to understand this. Because then I look at the language of... of, of um, of God saying that, let us make humanity in our own image. That, that line stuck out to me this week. It's, it's one of those lines that, again, you can take in a million different ways. But it's, it's, a, it's kind of a confusing line, right? Because the Hebrew Bible is clear that God is one. And yet God's using plural language. And God's saying that everybody around the world is made in God's own image. It, it's like out of the gates, this, this, this text is telling us that God is more multi-layered and expansive than we're ready for. That there's something about God that is not easily containable. And it's a little ethereal. And maybe even a little confusing or paradoxical at times. But I wonder if what it's also communicating to us is that faith can be that way as well. 
that sometimes we don't just need one story. Sometimes we need multiple stories. Sometimes we need multiple perspectives. And wouldn't you know, the book of Genesis, out of the gate, says here's actually two very different stories of creation. One that's really big, like you pull out a paint roller and you're doing broad brush strokes on the wall. And then we get to Genesis 2, and the order's a little different, and that paintbrush becomes pencil thin, and there's a lot of detail, and there's intimacy. It's God, it's this human named Hadam, quite literally the word for human, and then this human's partner named Eve, also a serpent, but we're not getting to that part today. Um, it's this really beautiful and intimate story of relationship, and it takes place not in the cosmos, not even in the whole of the earth, but in a garden. And I wonder if this story has something to show us a different way, perhaps, of moving and being in this space. In, in chapter 2, verse 14, God gives an instruction to Hadam, the first human. It's not verse 14. I got that wrong. That's saying something about the rivers of the Tigris and the Gihon. That's not it at all. What verse am I looking for, Scott? Dadgummit. Well, I've got the words here that I wanted to say anyways. God says, just trust me on this one and look it up later. All right? I gave myself four seconds, and that felt like an eternity right then. All right. I've been doing this too long uh, to, to have that happen. So God says something along the lines of to serve and to keep. In some translations of the Bible, again, every translation is an interpretation. There's more agrarian language used of like, you're supposed to treat the earth and you're supposed to nourish it, you're supposed to uh, make it fertile, you're supposed to, to, to plant and grow it. But the, 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 those translations were coming about during a time when most people lived in an agrarian setting. And so culturally, if you're being told how to relate to the earth, that was going to be language that would make sense to you if you're living in an agrarian setting. But the original Hebrew is a little broader than that. And really, the, the language it's using is this language of service, this sort of humility to serve something or someone like a master. So rather than us being placed on top, God is saying, no, 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 you got to get low. If you want to love the earth, if you want to love this creation, you got to get low. You've got to serve it, and you've got to care for it, keep it tenderly, like your own child, perhaps. Remember, we're brought into this earth as mirrors of God. The first story tells us, bearing this imago day. I wonder if that image of God is to see ourselves as partners in loving this creation that God has birthed, not from a supremacy standpoint, but from a humility standpoint. In fact, God invites the first person, Hadam, to name the animals. That's the first action that this person takes. And naming in this culture is incredibly important. To name someone or to name something is to assign value is to see worth, to see the spirit of God alive in them or in it. And so for God's first action to give to Hadam be, name all of these creatures. Yes, and I mean every one of them. It means to take a look at every single thing on this earth and see it the way I do and find value in it. And not just general value, but see each individual living thing and say, you are a platypus. I love that about you. You're an echidna. I'm staying in Australia for right now. You're an emu, right? Um, that's what you are, and you are awesome. That's the first job that God gives to Hadam. So maybe we're not subduers of creation. Maybe we're not even stewards, but maybe we are, in fact, servants. And I wonder if the, the, the sequence of the creation story tells us something, that as the people who are last to the table, maybe we're first called to humbly serve what we've inherited 
We are last to the table and we are first to humbly serve what we've inherited. The question is, how does this servant power show up in the world? How do we leverage this power throughout creation, whether that's in our own backyard or someplace far away? I think Genesis challenges us in the very natural human instinct and inclination towards a sort of helpless cynicism when it comes to relating to creation, whether we're talking about the earth itself or the people within it. And I say all the time, I'm a recovering cynic, so maybe I'm just projecting like crazy on everybody here this morning. But I see all too often in us and in our leaders the sort of throwing up our hands, it doesn't matter what subject we're talking about, whether it be climate change or gun control or this, that, or the other. Well, what can we really do? You know, what, what can we really do? We're just, we're just ants living on a rock. You know, what can we really do? And I would say, go read Genesis again. If you do claim this faith, go read Genesis again and tell me that God does not see within us incredible power to serve this world and its people and everything of creation really, really well. It asks us to not give in to this sort of helpless cynicism and instead to have and to hold enormous creative and substantive power in the world around us. The first thing I think we have to do is to be willing to imagine a better reality. It's really hard to do that sometimes. Can, can I get an amen right now? It is really hard to imagine things could be better at times. I think that's why we call this faith, uh, the things yet unseen, right? But I do think that faith challenges us into creativity to wonder what could be to not get stuck in what is, but to wonder what could be. And maybe it sounds really big and enormous to imagine a renewed earth. That's a really big thing. Maybe your creative energy takes you first to your own street or to your next door neighbor. Maybe God's calling you to love your neighbor in a literal way. Maybe your creative energy could go to the school near your house. You could invest in students that aren't actually yours. Maybe they need a tutor or reading buddy. Maybe, maybe it could take you into the street, quite literally, of your neighborhood to reach out and make connections. Wasn't that nice during COVID time? We all loved that, and then we stopped suddenly, right? Because the world spun back up. Maybe the creative renewal energy for us is close to home. Maybe it's far away. But I would encourage you, wherever that energy sits, to lean into it and to wonder and imagine what could be because we serve a creative God and we bear God's image, so we are called to be creative as well. And then we have to commit ourselves to do the humble, hard, and servant-hearted work that that creative energy will lead us into because prayer without works is dead. Prayer leads to action. Faith leads to works. And our creativity is going to lead us into activity along with the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, there's a way that I could tie this up very neatly and nicely. It is Mother's Day and it's Confirmation Sunday, but I cannot preach this sermon without talking about Alan, okay? So stay with me, because as I'm looking at Genesis chapter 1, and I'm reading these words, and I see the language of God of be fruitful and multiply and flourish and all this good stuff, and I'm sitting here preaching to you saying, hey, let's have creative energy, let's imagine something better. And this week, I've been on a journey, as I know everybody in this room has. And I, I, I can sense the weariness, the exhaustion, and the frustration. My therapist tells me I should say my feelings more often. Evidently, he thinks I'm a robot, but whatever. Um, so I'm going to just simply walk through some of the emotions I have felt in the last week. On Saturday, the first thing I felt was unsurprised. I'm kind of sad or even embarrassed to admit that. We've had over 200 mass shootings this year. That means four or more people injured or killed. Over 200 this year. We're on a record-setting pace. 
So I was unsurprised when I saw a headline that afternoon that there was an active shooter at the Allen Outlet Center. I was unsurprised. That quickly, I felt not unsurprised, but then scared. Because that's where I buy my jeans, that's where my friends go to shop. I know there are people in here who had friends that were there, that were hiding in storage rooms. I had a friend who was at that very spot an hour before it happened. I was terrified for what it meant for me and for my people. Then I was horrified. Content warning, I do not encourage you to go online and look for imagery. I'll tell you that I did. And I'll tell you why I did. And I'll tell you why I think that our leaders, our legislative leaders, ought to as well. Because Emmett Till led to racial justice movement in this country in a way it had not done for far too long. War journalists in Vietnam with video cameras led to an ending of the war that might have gone on entirely too long. If our leaders were to see what these destructive weapons, what these dominating weapons can do to precious children of God, I wonder if we might have another moment like Emmett Till or the Vietnam War. I don't encourage you, hear me clearly, I do not encourage you to go and find these things out. But I do demand that the leaders who are saying we can't do anything to look at it. Because I'm so tired of us saying we can't do anything. Um, okay, as you can tell, I then moved into anger. <laughs> I then moved into anger, and as an Enneagram One, hashtag Enneagram One things, I can sit there for a long, long time. I'm still there. Grief is messy and it's not linear. I'm angry. I have been angry. I continue to be angry because we continue to have leaders that demoralize me and I know depress you who continue to throw their hands up in the air and say, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And we say, well, how about this list of 25 things? Well, you got anything else? Do you want to start there? Let's talk about mental health. Great. Let's talk about mental health. Let's talk about this, that, or the other. Great. Let's talk about this, that, or the other. Can we please talk about guns? Well, what can we do? So I ended my week feeling pretty depressed, quite frankly, and really not looking forward to this sermon. And then I went to a park. You could say a garden yesterday. I went to a park in Allen where there was a gathering of hundreds of people for a uh, rally that was put together by Moms Demand Action. Because it turns out what moms want for Mother's Day is not flowers. They want common sense gun reform. Right? Mothers, am I right? Also, they probably want to nap, just, just to be clear. <laughs> now, I was, I was there, and, and I felt my spirit lifting into hope. I was grateful for colleagues that I personally know who were invited to speak and, and, and to offer their thoughts. I was grateful for the local leaders who were uh, witnessing to their continued commitment to seeing something effectively change. But what gave me the most hope was the students. The students who've not yet graduated, students like the ones whom we just baptized and blessed and recognized and confirmed here, who spoke up and said, enough is enough. I'm tired of being terrified and traumatized because you guys can't figure this out. And here's the thing that we do with students sometimes. I'm going to speak on their behalf for a moment because I know this is what they would say. So frequently what we do is we listen to students and we go, God. Oh, I'm so hopeful for the future. The world's going to be in such good hands when you are, are in charge. Oh, that just gives me so much hope. And you know what I hear students saying? 
miss me with that hope. Do not have that hope for me. Have that hope for yourself. Do not throw your hands up in the air and buy into that cynicism that says, what can we do? We need you to see that you have the power in your hands right now. Did you know that more than 70% of this country agrees about what to do? We have this power in our hands. Don't hope that our students can figure this out. Hope that we can. That's what our students need us to do. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, but today. I could keep going, but I'm going to land the plane, I promise. We can be creative, and we can also be active. We can confront those who seek domination and offer a path forward of humility and hardworking servant hearts. We can call our leaders and let them know that the overwhelming majority of Americans across all party lines, I might say, support substantive common sense changes to our gun laws. We can imagine an America where my daughter's first grade classroom does not need to have a thick black piece of butcher paper rolled up on the window prepared for when they do an out of sight and silent drill. We can imagine a world where fear and violence give way to trust and peace. We can imagine a land where all people are held as tenderly and beloved as the divine. And then we can get to work the low, grueling, messy, on your hands and knees work to make creativity a reality because this world is God's and it's trusted to us because there is no us and them there is only we because the bee and the buzzard and the begonia have as much right to this place as we do and because this is our home and everyone and everything inside of it is our family it's beautiful and it's broken and it's imperfectly perfect it's hurting and there is hope. That hope, my friends, is God who lives in us and loves through us. May we be supremely good. Amen.